Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here with us for this special show. We've got an interview today, and it's on a subject that uh, we are, I think, going to enjoy. We hope you enjoy it with us. Anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've been a professor of philosophy, a real estate investor, and I've written books. My latest book is in the house of Tom Bombadil, but I'm also the author of The Household and the War for the Cosmos. Okay, Tom. Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, Christian ethics, uh, philosophy at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and a few other places. All right. All right. Glenn, go ahead and introduce yourself and then uh, introduce our guest. Yeah, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired and recovering history professor, uh, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries. Um, My latest book is going to be coming out shortly. or maybe out by the time this is uh, released, it may be out. It's uh, 32 Christians Who Changed Their World. Now, um, our guest today is an old friend of mine. We spent some time in grad school together uh, back at the University of Wisconsin. We're in a small group together for a while. Uh, it's Doug Grotheis. Uh, Doug is a professor at Denver Seminary. He is an apologist and philosopher, and I'll let him tell you about the rest of it, but we're not going to talk to him about those things. We got something else in mind here. So, Doug, um, anything else you want to let him know about? Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm still recovering a little bit from a cough. I apologize if I cough during the broadcast. Uh, I've been a Professor of Philosophy at Denver Seminary for 30 years and authored a number of books. I have written about jazz. I don't have a book out on jazz, but if people are interested, there's a website called All About Jazz, and I think I have about 15 or 20 articles there, and you can find a few articles by me about jazz in various places. Great, great. Yeah, and that cues you in on our subject. We're going to be talking to Doug not directly about philosophy or apologetics, but we want to focus on on jazz. Uh, we've done a few shows that have touched on music before, but I don't think we've ever done um, done anything on this particular subject. So, um, Doug, just to sort of kick things off, as a philosopher and an apologist and such, what is it about jazz that caught your attention that that appeals to you? What is the connection? Well, I mean, at the most basic level, I can just say... I like it, you know. <laughs> As a, uh, that works. That works. Uh, immediate appreciation of jazz. But of course, as a philosopher, I try to reflect on my experience and look at the nature of what I'm interested in. So jazz has a, a rich history in American experience, and it has certain values that I appreciate, such as improvisation, respect for tradition. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's the whole idea of the standards in jazz. So accomplished jazz musicians will know by heart dozens and dozens of tunes and they can get together and just say, okay, let's do this and play it. So there's a level of virtuosity, Mm -hmm. respect for tradition, the idea of sympathetic interaction. I think it was, uh, It was a jazz critic, I think it was Stanley Crouch, who said that jazz in many ways typifies the best of American democracy of individualism combined with group endeavor. And I don't have that quote in front of me. But I find thinking about jazz, going to jazz concerts, 
listening to the great jazz artists uh, gives a lot of satisfaction to me and also I think is an open door for how some of the sensibilities and principles of jazz relate to other aspects of life, uh, such as, uh, for me, <clears throat> teaching, for one thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can jam on that a little bit here. Um, yeah, yeah, go go for it. Yeah. Let's hear some riffs. Yeah, it's a jazz show, so let's let's start jamming. <laughs> let's improv. Um, right. Not too wild, not too outside, though. But I realized after a while of teaching and loving jazz that my style of teaching was very much a jazz style because mm -hmm. I want the students to understand the standards, that is, the philosophy and apologetics and ethics arguments in our textbooks, and I want us to come together and improvise on those themes. And not just me improvise as a teacher, but engage in what jazz people call group improvisation. So in jazz, there's this saying called having big ears, and mm. it means the ability to listen to what the other musicians are playing in mm. order that you can sympathetically respond and maybe take it to a higher level with their their work. So when you go to a jazz concert, often you'll see the musicians looking at each other and smiling at each other because they're doing these subtle little riffs to spark the other player or to respond, the call and response. It really goes back to the, yeah. the old slave songs. So I realized after a while that at my best, and when the students are at their best, we're really engaging in a kind of jazz pedagogy. Yeah. Now, technology makes that a lot harder. It's yeah, a lot yeah. harder to jam on Zoom and get a jazz group going than, <laughs> than when you're in the classroom. Yeah. Now, so the way that works... It's a rich resource for reflection. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that that is that. You know, I heard, I think it was on Ken Burns' uh, series on jazz, uh, Wynton Marsalis talked about that, that it, it is this combination of listening carefully to what other people are doing, responding to it, working collaboratively, but mm -hmm. also going off on on solos, which right, right. follow a particular structure, but the people who are playing in background are responding to what the soloist is doing mm -hmm. and vice versa, all of these kinds of things, which right. actually isn't too far off from what we normally do on a podcast. <laughs> um, because the, the three of us, we know each other. We've been doing this for a couple of years now. Uh, we spend a lot of time listening to each other and sort of uh, uh, call and response kind of things going on. So um, I, I appreciate the analogy to pedagogy there. It, uh, a quick note since you brought up Marsalis. I, I did my undergrad in, in music and my uh, I, it, it was ended up being a jazz studies and well, jazz guitar. And it was Ellis Marsalis, the father of them, who did a he did a seminar. He was uh, adjunct at uh, the, mm. the performing arts school, and I remember yeah. he he sort of had his own uh, via negativa going on because he would always talk about it not being the notes you play; it's the notes you don't play. That was the key to 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 somehow which is very complicated when you're trying to learn how to do that to, to talk about the notes you don't play <laughs> yeah, just play but, a but, solo you know. entirely of nothing and, and <laughs> do pretty well well that's an interesting yeah. idea too because the idea of of space and yeah. in scripture there's a very high value given to silence 
And I like what Ecclesiastes says, the more words, the less meaning, and what does it profit anyone? And yeah. in, in music, sometimes the more notes, the less meaning, yeah. and what does it profit anyone? Miles Davis had that sensibility too, is yeah. what you don't play is as important as what you play. So a sense of holding your tongue, holding back, learning how to listen before you respond, trying to respond with the right note. And I think of something also Miles Davis said about Herbie Hancock, the great pianist, and he was playing yeah. with him. Uh, or actually, Herbie said this about Miles. Herbie said, I was playing with a Miles Davis quintet. It's one of the great groups of all time. And I played a wrong note. And then Miles played a note that made my wrong note the right note. <laughs> which is actually love right yeah right right it's an example yeah. of love and care in a musical setting so a quick question uh doug uh, are you a musician or do you play i play drums a little bit once in a while so yeah. the answer is really no but i fake it i fake it <laughs> what, what well, they, oh, go ahead chris well, I, I just wanted to note here that, of course, Tom plays and then Glenn plays. Glenn plays uh, a, a variety of instruments. And uh, so I'm the I'm the one who's the uh, non-player here. <laughs> and I do have some I do have some questions I wanted to uh, pose, um, you know, your your remark about uh, tradition and uh, the structure of jazz. I don't know if that is something that people who are outside the jazz world uh, understand that there is this mm -hmm. uh, agreed upon framework within which the impro improvisation is possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and I suspect that maybe that's why Richard Weaver uh, had a, had a uh, kind of negative outlook. So I do like, I, I would like to hear your thoughts on, on what he had to say, you know, and ideas have consequences uh, on that, that matter. Well, I have an essay on that, actually, at All About Jazz. And my question was, is being a political conservative somehow antithetical to liking jazz? And I <laughs> use Weaver's quote. I think Weaver didn't understand really what was going on because he had a take on jazz that <clears throat> a number of people have had, that it's somehow primitive and mm -hmm. just visceral without any sophistication or musical knowledge <laughs> and i mean there's bad jazz that could be primitive i suppose but the higher levels of jazz if you're talking about uh john coltrane miles davis thelonious yeah. monk herbie hancock charlie parker these are very sophisticated musicians and in the case with john coltrane he had a mastery of musical theory yeah uh, Giant Steps is based on the circle of fifths. It's very difficult to play. It, yeah. it kills most people who try to play it. Um, yeah. So I think at best it was ignorance. At worst, I don't want to say what it was. But <laughs> what happens, I think, with some people is that some jazz <clears throat> is not immediately entertaining or catchy enough to just get people to hum along or want to dance to it. Now, the earlier jazz was very much danceable, but once you go into bebop, mm -hmm. it's not really mm -hmm. uh, danceable, right? And so they don't understand it. And often what we don't understand, we condemn. So it takes some yeah. time to be initiated into 
the history and the structure of jazz and to learn how to listen to it. And this is really the way it is with anything of excellence. Uh, if you've only had uh, food at McDonald's, then you don't know what <laughs> good cuisine is. And if you've only had cheap wine, you don't know what the better wine is. Uh, years ago, one of my students, yeah. uh, we had a, a get-together <laughs> at some of the Denver Seminary students and people brought wine. And this my student was a connoisseur of wine and I tasted one of the wines. I said, I really like this. And uh, the student said, no, Dr. Grotheis, that is the Kenny G of wines. You are not supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that just gives away something about Doug's attitude toward Kenny G. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, you know, it, it, I think an interesting analogy is mathematics and physics. Yeah. You know, math, no matter no matter how weird the mathematicians get, no matter how far out it is uh, with their theories, sooner or later they connect to physics. The physicists will find some way of using the most advanced, bizarre, abstruse mathematics you can run into. I think jazz musicians are like that. Yeah. You know, in, in the sense that no matter how far you push music theory, forward in time or backwards, uh, jazz musicians work to, to incorporate it into what they're doing in some pretty remarkable ways. Mm -hmm. And just like I have no clue about advanced physics, I think people who aren't really familiar with jazz or with music theory can really miss what's going on. Yeah. Well, well this, this brings up something, Glenda, I think it's worth considering. Uh, like when we think about mathematics, uh, it's a kind of a process of discovery we're talking about. I mean, math is real. It's not just simply a socially sort of, it's not just a game that's been created to entertain us. It, there's, a, there's some kind of connection to the physical world. That's why physicists find advances in mathematics useful. Uh, are jazz musicians doing something similar? Well, I mean, I, I think what, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let him go with it, but I just know from, from my own familiarity with it is, first, firstly, it, it, starts, it starts from, some kind of rudimentary theoretical, you know, commitments. I mean, as as uh, Doug was talking about, for example, in 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 standard kind of blues or folk music, you have kind of three three main chords that are very simple that provide kind of the structure, a blues structure, and it, it's very organized. Well, jazz starts to play with that, but it doesn't play with it just arbitrarily. It takes, for example, one chord and, and it substitutes another chord that has a little bit of difference, but that little bit of difference adds a whole range of, of new, new sound and combinations. And then the mathematical part is what's brilliant. You can, you can create from sound relationships complete ways in which different scales and modes can be brought together to sound sound connected, which is impossible in, in some of the even classical music, the way it, it's structured. So I think Doug hit on something there. There is a profundity of sound reality that mathematics can kind of get a glimpse of theoretically, but they, people like Coltrane, they had it down to both. They were able to understand theoretically or quote unquote mathematically what was going on but they could also they could also it was internalized in a way that they could they could bring it about just from their their own participation in it yeah one of my favorite yeah. jazz musicians uh was a man named pat martino 
jazz guitar player passed away a few years ago and I got to know Pat a bit. Yes. I saw him seven times yeah. and I was able to introduce him yeah. at, at uh, Dallas, not Dallas, at uh, Dazzle in Denver once. It was yeah. a real joy yeah. to do that. And he was highly sophisticated on theory. Yeah. He did a lot of instructional videos about musical theory, but he had tremendous yeah. feeling and rapport, yeah. but it came out of this vast knowledge of the music yeah. and the ideas would flow. And I'll, I'll tell you my favorite story about jazz. I wrote an article about this. Mm -hmm. I saw Pat Martino at the, the jazz showcase in Chicago in 2012 and a friend of mine sponsored what I call a jazz immersion. We'd, we're going to Chicago, and all we're going to do is go to jazz concerts. And what we did, we found Pat Martino was performing. We went to Chicago to hear him, and he did two nights, yeah. two shows a night, yeah. two shows a night at the jazz showcase. So we just went to all the shows because with jazz, there's no repetition. There's no, uh, well, he did that That's the right. first set because it's always different every time. <laughs> And after the first set, which was phenomenal, it was Pat on electric guitar, Pat Bianchi on organ, and Carmen and Toure on drums. After the set, mm. Pat was at the bar, and I went and talked to him. And I said, Pat, you've played that pop song, Sonny, in the past with groups. Can you Do you play Sonny with this group? He goes, no. And they said, but you never know. And then... <laughs> Played the next set, and for the encore, uh, he looks at the organist, Pat Bianchi, and goes, Sonny? And Pat Bianchi goes, yes. He looks at the drummer, Carmen and Toure, goes, Sonny? Yeah. And then he counts it off. And they play this just swinging, unbelievable version of Sonny. And I have to admit, I teared wow. up. It was like, I can't believe <laughs> they never, nice. They never played it before. And if you've heard that tune, it's a very joyous uh yeah. beautiful vehicle for jazz hmm. they never even played this song before and uh, it's, not, it's not simple and you've got to figure out how everything fits together and what kind of solo to play and yeah. it's interesting after that they made that part of their repertoire <laughs> as a band I <laughs> nice so, that combination oh, that is, of that feeling nice. and <clears throat> technical mastery the relationship yeah. among the musicians. And also, uh, Tom, you said something about substituting chords and the possibilities mm -hmm. in this form. Uh, there's a really important part of jazz, which is called syncopation, which is yeah. the offbeat, making the offbeat the right beat. Yeah. And there's a, a book I like by Robert Gelinas called Finding the Groove, uh, Developing a Jazz-Shaped Faith. And he has a chapter on, on syncopation. And he uses an example actually from Jesus with Zacchaeus because Jesus is, is walking and he sees this little man up in the tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I have to have a meal with you. And uh, Robert says that had to have been improvised. You, know, <laughs> you can't plan something like this. So Jesus was willing to be interrupted, to improvise, and I think a big part of life is wisely improvising on the situations you have with conversations hmm. uh, in all kinds of areas. This idea of syncopating, uh, making the offbeat the mm -hmm. right beat, not just 
marching well, through life in a very just, simple way, but being creative in a good way. Yeah. Well, when I think about improv, you know, there are different ways or sort of places where improv occurs. One is in comedy. Um, you know, people like Jonathan Winters and Robin Williams, they were known for their virtuosity mm-hmm. <laughs> when it mm-hmm. came to humor and, oh, yeah. and kind of making stuff up on the fly. And, um, you know, we, we appreciate that, uh, you know, getting to, to something even as, um, uh, central to the Christian faith is evangelism. One, one of the problems is that we have this kind of rote approach. Sometimes you memorize a, a presentation and then you try to squeeze every conversation into that convert into that, mm-hmm. you know, pre-programmed approach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, there's not the kind of virtuosity with the gospel that sometimes we would love to see, uh, more, more often the case, uh, where you can just kind of it just in the normal course of conversation, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, actually just talk to people about, uh, eternal verities, you know? Right. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I, I think this carries over into to other areas, but I think even when I think about say classical music, where all the notes are scripted for you, um, the greats, uh, bring something of themselves to the interpretation of the mm-hmm. piece that they're working with. Mm-hmm. So I would I would hope that a person who actually is a musician wouldn't sort of um, prejudge jazz based on you know some, maybe some of the prejudices that they've heard, but would actually understand kind of Im- immediately from this. You know, because uh, just because you can strike all the keys on the keyboard where they're supposed to be struck doesn't mean that you have an inspired uh, performance. There's something mm-hmm. more that has to happen. Yeah. Well, it's also important to remember something that people either don't know or have forgotten, that in particularly the Baroque era, um, improv and earlier, improvisation was the norm. Mm. You know, the, a lot of Renaissance tunes, for example, are bass lines. That's it. And then when you get to the Baroque period, you get the bass line with what's called a figured bass. They start putting numbers with the notes, which tell you what chords are supposed to go there. But beyond that, you're on your own. You were supposed to be able to improvise. You were expected to improvise under those circumstances. This is still done by organists today. Um, I think in the classical world, organists are the only ones that regularly engage in improvisation. They're, They're good ones. Um, I didn't know that. You know, so so the, the improvisation isn't unique to jazz. It's been part of music forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, improvising on a figured bass is not much different from improvising on chord cymbals. It's basically the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Some people think that improvisation is just making it up on the fly. And that's not what a virtuoso is doing with improvisation. Uh, It is rooted in tradition. It requires the mastery of various techniques. And a good improviser, or let's say a great improviser, maybe maybe the greatest improviser on saxophone of all time. John Coltrane's my favorite, but maybe Sonny Rollins was the greatest improviser, the most intelligent the most Hmm. uh, remarkable of all time. You can't just get up there and do that. You have to have put in thousands of hours of time in the woodshed practice, playing with various Mm -hmm. groups, experimenting, listening to what the other players are doing. 
And improvisation is working on themes with creativity. It's not random. So if you don't understand, yeah. or like the great, some of the great piano improvisations of Keith Jarrett, I mean, he would just sit down at a piano with no music, no plan, and play. Miles Davis couldn't figure it out. You say, Keith, how do you do that? How do you just sit there? <laughs> and Keith Jarrett can't even explain it, but it comes out of an immense, you know, God-given talent, and then thousands and thousands of hours of playing by himself, yeah. playing with others, and so on. Yeah, here's here's a thought. Um, it strikes me. So I, I'm more visual, uh, and, and I'm, I'm a visual artist. I'm an illustrator. Um, one of the things that I think I see in the creative process is a kind of exploration. You have kind of a a sort of a sense or you intuit a possibility and then you begin to explore. You just kind of move in that direction and then see what kind of logically follows. Not necessarily like a calculator, but by kind of feel, you just kind of say, Oh, this, this was what comes next. This. So it, getting back to this idea of discovery, you know, that there is a kind of world out there to explore the world of sound um, and kind of the relationships between sounds I think that's, that's uh, kind of in play as well. One of the things, though, that I've wondered about is what is it about the American experience? And I've got some ideas on this, but I'd like to hear yours, Doug. Um, what is it about the American experience that makes it possible for us to generate such great folk music? Mm. I mean, our folk music is loved around the world. You know, not just jazz, but, you know, we think about uh, Zydeco or you think about you know, bluegrass, uh, people all over the world love our stuff. What is it about the American experience that makes that possible? Hmm. Well, I think we should probably have Ted Joya on the program to answer that question. Yeah. <laughs> if you're looking at uh, things I know better, like spirituals, blues, and jazz, a lot of it is the creative engagement of suffering with hope. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, William Edgar's new book, which I recommend with a caveat, A Supreme Love, deals with this. Uh, Bill Edgar's retired theology and apologetics professor at Westminster, and also a jazz pianist. And he's a very good that, jazz pianist, actually. <laughs> yeah, I've heard him play a few times. He's he's no biker. I mean, he, he's got a working band. <laughs> he's been playing for decades and decades. I think that's a big part of it, is the, the striving for freedom under suffering with hope because if you're talking about the old what they called negro spirituals and then going into blues and jazz there's this sense of yeah. of hope against the odds and we're going to do what we can do which is sing and make music and you know swing low sweet chariot will eventually be redeemed and not just redeemed in the afterlife but we're seeking redemption in this life and although I don't like him as a theologian at all, James Cone's book, The Spiritual and the Blues, Spirituals and the Blues, I think, hmm. articulates that sense of yearning for freedom ultimately in the world to come, but freedom in this world for oppressed hmm. African-Americans. I think that's a big part hmm. of it, at least with, with that stream of spirituals, blues, and jazz. I can't speak too much uh, to the others, but I think the, the kind of freedom and opportunity that America has held as central, of course, 
many peoples did not have that from the beginning, such as uh, African Americans and <clears throat> indigenous peoples. But it's been an ideal uh, of creativity and uh, the struggle to create and find meaningful freedom. I think that's a big part of it. Plus, you know, we're, we were a melting pot. So, so many people coming yeah. from so many parts of the world and bringing their music here. And then that gives you kind of a laboratory yeah, to develop the different strands of music and see how they fit together and evolve. Yeah. So you mentioned Edgar with a caveat. What's the caveat? <laughs> well, the caveat is that when he talks about jazz being rooted in the African-American experience, he seems to lean towards a uh, critical race theory understanding of race in America. He's got a footnote where he mm. references Abraham X. Kendi and, and so on. And I think uh, Abraham X. Kendi is just a disaster on every level, uh, logically, yeah. sociologically, and everything else. But I still gave Bill a good review in academic questions for his book. I just had a couple sentences. We could have done really well without that footnote, you know, without those comments. Mm -hmm. But it's not like it uh, poisons the whole book by any means. Right, right. Well, great stuff. So if, if somebody were to... Um, you know, enter into the world of jazz music for the first time, how, how would that happen? How would you recommend that person proceed? Well, I think probably attending a jazz concert. Of course, we can always listen to pre-recorded music, but there's nothing like being there for a jazz concert mm -hmm. because of the interplay among the musicians and the interaction with the audience. Um, it's very much a conversation. And if it's a good jazz concert, there's a lot of, a lot of joy, a lot of risk taking. And if it's a small venue, let's say if it's a nightclub, uh, like Dazzle here in Denver, which, which I like very much. And it's a very nice club. You can always or often talk to the musicians afterwards because they finish and they maybe walk to the side, but, they'll come back out and mix and you can chat with people. Oh, nice. That's it's very enjoyable to do that. But I think if you just want recordings, I would go to kind of blue by miles Davis, which is a standard with jazz. John Coltrane <laughs> was on there. Bill Evans, cannonball Adderley, mm -hmm. Jimmy Cobb, Jimmy Cobb played drums and Jimmy Cobb uh, lived up until his mid nineties and he hmm. came to Denver twice. I saw him play twice. And hmm. when I saw him at Dazzle, I sat right behind him. So I could, I, I used to play drums. So I could see every little thing that he was doing. <laughs> In fact, they had to help him come out. Now, when I cut what? But it was great. He could still wow. play drums. Yeah. Now, the, the names you've mentioned, uh, and I'm not a jazz music aficionado by a long stretch, but they're all familiar names. And I'm assuming that they're sort of the golden era kind of people. Um, you know, people who are no longer with us, uh, mm -hmm. but we have the recordings and so forth. What do you think is the state of jazz music today? I mean, you know, you noted earlier that it comes out of kind of the authenticity that is only possible when you're actually experiencing hardship, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Uh, is, 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 are things, 
degrading or things status quo or are, are there musicians you like that are sort of up and coming and you know what what is it about them well that's a big question the album i referred to kind of blue came out in 1959 and i think everyone now that jimmy cobb has passed on everyone on that recording is gone but i still find a lot of jazz that fits that description that i've given of collaboration, improvisation, respect for tradition, and so on. Um, one jazz musician I, I loved and I saw, I think three times, sadly, passed away at a young age, an organist named Joey DeFrancesco. Mm. And he was, I think, one of the greatest organists of all time, jazz organists. And he was so good. He's like he mastered the mm. organ and then he started playing other instruments. So he started playing trumpet he started singing and he was really good at singing and playing trumpet i think before he passed away he started playing saxophone and i <clears throat> i saw him play at dazzle several years ago and he was having a meal i think before the the set and i was able to talk with him and they said i told him that the great organist larry young was sometimes called the john coltrane of the organ and I said, if I were introducing you tonight, I would call you the Joey D. Francesco of the organ. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you are the guy. You know, Joey D. Francesco is the Joey D. Francesco of the organ. And he went like this, like, oh yeah. you know, those are beautiful. <laughs> and I was yeah. I flattering him. I just I thought it was a true description yep. of his talents. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, th another thing, though, about, you know, we, we talked about it, it coming out of suffering, um, you know, the music, but there's also an element of playfulness in jazz mm -hmm. that I think is is also tremendously appealing. I remember back in the late 70s when I was actually playing, um, uh, I went to a, a club called Gulliver's in Patterson, New Jersey, <laughs> and Bill Watrous was there. Uh, trombone player, great trombonist, uh, with his group. And one of the tunes that they did, which was actually something of a standard in the period, everybody was doing it, was the theme song to the Flintstones. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is a great piece to improvise to. Uh, yeah. The chords are a lot more complex than you would expect. Um, and it's just, it, was, it was just a huge amount of fun. So you've introduced an earworm to our whole listening audience today. There's going to be folks who just can't get the theme uh, to the <laughs> Flintstones out of their heads for days. Yeah, if you go back to popular television themes in the 50s and 60s, they're mm -hmm. usually jazz. And yeah. usually they're, they're pretty swinging yeah. good jazz. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is why the Flintstones worked so well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, well, jazz always evolves and changes. Uh, you were talking about the the status of jazz, and it's very prone to hybridization. So there's Latin yeah. jazz, and there's jazz yeah. influenced by classical music, and jazz influenced by yeah. funk, and uh, a genre that I really like is uh, jazz rock fusion especially some of yeah, the seven yeah. groups like uh, Return to Forever and Mahavishnu Orchestra and so on. So you've yeah. got like... Uh, that, uh, was that like Billy, Billy Cobham? Was he part oh, of yeah, that? Uh, Billy he Cobham. was in Mahavishnu. Yeah. Right. He was yeah. 
Probably the best drummer I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, Chick Corea, no. all the all those uh, John Patitucci, a bass player. They lo- that there was a lot were produced out of that kind of scene. Yeah. Now, yeah. now, kind of uh, getting to this matter of, of fusion, are there uh, musical traditions that just can't be uh, fused with jazz? So let me give you an example. Mm. So I mentioned bluegrass earlier. I love banjo. Uh, I like bluegrass banjo. Bella Fleck. Oh, sure. uh, is a yeah. you know virtuoso, mm-hmm. but he's also you know kind of stepped over the line into the into the jazz world. And to be mm-hmm. honest, I, I'm not as into you know his uh, jazz uh, with the banjo as I am well, you know the traditional stuff. You're not Any beyond our prayers. That? Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have our weaknesses. You know. <laughs> well, I don't know, no, well, um, Chris. Uh, someone once told me that uh, the definition of perfect pitch is when the banjo hits the accordion when you throw it into the dumpster. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the banjo itself is an interesting instrument because it has its roots in Africa, you know, as an African hybrid among uh, a lot of slaves bring over, but it's got a rhythmic, it's got the rhythmic side and, and then the strength side. So you you could imagine it being compatible with a whole variety of of you know again t- styles of playing is very different, but just in terms of the instrument itself, um, it's similar to like a mandolin. Um, you you can really see that as a crossover instrument um, now as as well. But but if your ear is very familiar with a, a, an instrument in in one you know, uh, you know, in, in one style of music, sometimes it is hard to gravitate to what people are doing. But I think that's where some of the most innovative stuff happens when somebody, you know, reaches that, that, uh, you know, they reach that chord over and add that extra note and it builds a thicker harmony. And then they've stepped over into another style of music. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. Yeah, who banjos are being been. used in Irish music now too. So mm-hmm. they're yeah, I think it was Whitney Whitney Belay or Belette, the jazz critic, that said that jazz was the sound of surprise. And when you see a jazz concert, sometimes the musicians, I think, surprise themselves as to what happens in their solos and what happens collaboratively. Yeah. But I I really love traditional small group jazz. Yeah. And there's an apologetics conference every year that's held in New Orleans called Defend with uh, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. And the unwritten part of me coming is you have to take Grotheis to a jazz concert. Whatever you pay him, <laughs> you've got to take him to a jazz concert. And there's a little club I've gone to many times called Snug Harbor. And this last time, there was a jazz quartet led by a guy named, uh, I think it was uh, Harlan Riley, drummer. And it's drums, mm. bass, saxophone, and acoustic piano in a little mm. setting. And it's the most joyful, creative, amazing uh, experience. One of the best concerts I had ever seen. Just pure yeah. jazz standards, improvisation. At one point, uh, the drummer, I think his name is Harlan, uh, just transcended the drum set. So he started playing the water pipe on the wall. As a right symbol. <laughs> you can't get any better than this, you know. It, it was so joyful. And, and I think this particular gentleman uh, is a Christian. It, he, yeah. 
he talked in such a way and he acted in such a way that I think he may, may very well be a, a believer. Hmm. Just remarkable uh, human virtuosity, like human beings at their creative best. Well, you know, you've brought up something here that's worth, I think, reflecting on a little bit, because I think one of the things when people associate with jazz is a kind of uh, edgy sort of subculture that's exploring not just music, but lots of other things as well. <laughs> so so what about the Christian faith in jazz and the sort of the sort of the, 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 the Christian who is a jazz musician and how does that play out in mm-hmm. that world? Well, that's sort of the image problem that jazz has the idea it's the music of uh the music of the uh bad part of town the idea that jazz came out of new orleans came out of uh houses of prostitution and all the rest of it it's more complicated than that uh in some cases i think that's the only place the musicians could play would be in the red light district but i don't think there's anything intrinsic to the music that is uh, erotically evil or intrinsically worldly or sensuous. But yeah, it's been associated uh, with that. And in the 50s, bebop, 40s and 50s, the bebop music was in some ways associated with existentialism, the idea of being very creative and charting your own path and taking chances and wearing berets and you know, smoking cigarettes in a certain way. So that was part of the image. But again, is there anything about the music that's going to make you an advocate of Jean-Paul Sartre or <laughs> I don't think so. But that's been the problem with some conservatives, like with uh, Weavers. Like this is the music of the red light district. It's primitive. It's not sophisticated. And I, I just don't buy that. And also in Bill Edgar's book, The Supreme Love, he deals with that origin issue. You know, if the origin is bad and seedy, well, then the music has to be bad and seedy. And, genetic fallacy, yeah. Yeah, genetic fallacy. Um, and it's not even getting the genesis right because it's, it's yeah, more complicated right. than that. Exactly. Well, am I wrong? What was J.I. Packer was a big fan of jazz. Is that correct? I remember re- hearing that a few times, and I thought, you know, I, I just would never have made that connection. But uh, from what I understand, had quite quite a collection, not only of books, but uh, yeah, a that, jazz library. That rings a bell. I think that's right. Also, the the art historian Hans Ruckmacher was uh, uh, an aficionado of jazz, early jazz. He thought it got hmm. totally corrupt at bebop. <laughs> hmm. Bebop's like <laughs> my favorite form of jazz. But, yeah, uh, of course, he and Schaefer collaborated on some of their historical and cultural criticisms. Although Schaefer never wrote much about jazz, but huh. Rick Mocker did. Huh. You know, when I lived in, in uh, Paris and, uh, well, mostly in Paris, one of the things that I discovered is that Europeans really like earlier jazz. Yeah. It's just very, very popular over there. Hmm. Um, it, it, one of the weird experiences I had mm-hmm. is I, I, I was going into the Place des Vosges uh, by uh, Square in Paris, and th- frequently there are musicians playing there. And at one point I walked in and I was hearing what sounded like Dixieland style jazz, maybe a little bit past Dixieland. And then all of a sudden it just got really strange. 
And <laughs> when, when I got closer, I realized what they were doing. Um, they, they were playing these sort of standard, you know, early jazz tunes. But then when it went to the solos, they were playing using Hungarian minor scales and things like that. Uh, <laughs> because, because these musicians, I guess, uh, they were probably gypsy musicians and uh, that was sort of their native idiom. So when they went into improv, that's what they did. That's interesting. It was just a very, very strange combination. Yeah. Well, we, we, well in the course of the conversation. <laughs> yeah. So in the course of the conversation, we've we've identified or made reference to different kinds of jazz, you know, bebop, um, early standards. Um, what are the different sort of subsets uh, in the genre? Uh, are there more that people ought to know about? Well, there are, there's a lot to think about. There's um, big band jazz like uh, Count Basie, Duke Ellington. A variety of others. Those are the two that most people would think about. But also Stan Kenton, and you have uh, bebop, you have jazz rock fusion. Uh, there's uh, kind of funk jazz, Latin jazz, uh, jazz influenced by uh, classical music. There's a kind of jazz called cool jazz or West Coast jazz, which is not to be confused with smooth jazz. Hmm. Let's keep that straight. Smooth jazz <laughs> is in the outer darkness and it has nothing to do with yeah. real jazz. Okay. Not that I'm opinionated oh. about this, but <laughs> well, let, let's explore this outer darkness theme. <laughs> no. So what is So when you say smooth jazz, uh, is, uh, outer darkness, mm. is, is that because it's sort of like Muzak or, or yes. is it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's the problem with smooth jazz is that they really don't have the spirit of improvisation and taking risks. It's too sedate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if I had the option of listening to smooth jazz or death metal, okay, I'll take smooth jazz, but <laughs> <laughs> not now, sure. now get, yeah. getting to, to, to you, to Europeans and their interest in jazz, cause I've come across this as well. Then there are different, I think America has become kind of the land of the new myths for a lot of the a lot of Europeans, but you know, when I think about what what was it about, or what is it about jazz that that kind of drew in uh, a number of people, well, large large you know uh, a large fan base from Europe now. Uh, what do you think it is? I mean, is it is it because maybe they got into it initially thinking that this was kind of primitivism, sort of like uh, you know Rousseau's Noble Savage kind of thing, uh, and then they actually learned more about it or what any thoughts on that well i think jazz is um, a very rich big kind of magnet there are a lot of features that are attractive if you pay close attention to it and one of it is one aspect is the ability of of free expression but it's free expression it should be uh within a tradition and according to learning how to play an instrument well so there's there's structure, there's form, there's improvisation, there's a blending of different elements at the origin of jazz. I think it's really spirituals that are the background. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have early blues, and that mm -hmm. kind of becomes a part of jazz. The blues structure is very mm -hmm. significant to jazz. And there's also something to jazz we haven't talked about overtly. I talked about syncopation. There's this idea of swing. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, Duke Ellington has his famous song called It Don't Mean a Thing If, if It Ain't Got That Swing. Mm-hmm. Now, what exactly is swing? Well, you mm-hmm. can define it musically in terms of a beat, uh, where the accent falls on a beat. Mm-hmm. But it, it means more than that. It's more like a spirit of improvisation or a spirit of, of syncopation. Sometimes people use the phrase like uh, getting into the groove or you're really swinging on that, like you're in a flow state musically, something like that. I think that idea of swing is uh, very significant for jazz and can be applied to other areas of life in terms of really focusing. I know sometimes when I write, I kind of get in a groove and Mm -hmm. I don't worry about time and I just keep writing and writing and writing. My wife comes down and Says you're ever going to come upstairs, you know? I'm doing this by myself. I don't write collaboratively, <laughs> but I think it's part of the image of God, really. That part of being made in the image and likeness of God is creativity and artistic creativity. So we can't create from nothing, truly, the way God does. But mm-hmm. there's such a range of possibilities that human beings can explore. Yeah. We can refract the world in so many different ways yeah. musically uh, that it it can be it can be wonderful. And with jazz, if you're really in the spirit of of original jazz, no jazz musician will play the same solo twice. They may have yeah. certain chops or certain themes, mm-hmm. but every song and every solo is different. Let me give you an example. When I saw Pat Martino mm-hmm. here in Denver. Some years ago, he played this tune called Footprints by Wayne mm-hmm. Shorter. Beautiful song. Wayne Shorter just yeah. passed away, and he was mm-hmm. a marvelous uh, composer, saxophonist, soprano sax, tenor sax. Mm-hmm. And Pat played Footprints, uh, and then he played it again, the same song, but he played it at a slow tempo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They played it at, it was either slow first and then fast or fast first and then slow. And I was with somebody and I said, they're playing the same song in a different tempo. (laughs) And, you know, where but in jazz could anybody even think of doing something like that? Yeah. And it it changes. I mean, to to a person not perceptive, they would think they're not playing the same thing at all. Yeah, the person I was with didn't notice. Yeah. Because the feel was so different. Yeah, so when it comes to appreciating an art form, does that sort of what you're getting at here, uh, Doug? Does that imply that you need to be engaged with some kind of creative process yourself in order to relate? Hmm. Well, I think I think that great artistry, wherever it is, uh, jazz, classical music, painting, teaching, writing, inspires the person that beholds it to work in some field and be excellent. I know when I, when I hear a virtuoso uh, performance of jazz, uh, I think I, I'm not a musician, but I think I would like to be able to teach like that or preach like that or, or write like that, you know, transpose I, I, from one. Yeah, I, I guess that's, I guess that's what I'm getting at. So let's say you're a Philistine. Let's say you have no taste at all. It m- might that have something to do with the fact that you're just not engaged with anything, uh, you know, in life that uh, requires you to 
draw on that that part of our nature as creatures made in the image of God. Well, it could well be one of my favorite, if not my favorite philosophers, Blaise Pascal, and he said that we spend a lot of our time diverting ourselves from ultimate issues and ultimate questions, the problem mm-hmm. of diversion. And our whole society is set up to systemically divert us mm-hmm. from what's important. Mm-hmm. So you have to pursue truth and beauty and goodness. It doesn't just knock on your door, in a sense. Now, God reveals himself to all people. We know that from Romans 1. So we are without excuse. But the better things in life require a little bit of pursuit and work. And we need mentors. Uh, So if you take any class from, from me... You'll always learn about jazz, even though the class has nothing to do with jazz, right? <laughs> or apologetics and ethics, or it's C.S. Lewis, or some other class. But uh, because jazz has influenced my life so much, it it ends up coming in um, to the class. And I don't think extrane- uh, in a kind of extraneous way. I think it it gets integrated into what I do. At least I hope so. Hmm. I think that, that the problem a lot of people have with jazz is they don't know how to listen to it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think more than most music, jazz requires a certain amount of, well, let's call it education, to understand what you're listening to. Um, you know, some of, the, some of the early jazz is, is, is relatively simple and you don't, you know, you can, you can just sort of enjoy it. But the further along you go, I really think you need somebody to kind of coach you along a bit, at least to get you started. Yeah, you know, when I when I think about that, um, Glenn, I, I think that there are other things that are similar in, in nature. You know, Doug brought up wines, for example. You know, sweet wines generally are the wines that everybody likes without having to develop a taste for wine. <laughs> and I think I think that when it comes to say athletics, um, baseball, uh, for example, is a, is a game that unless you've played it and unless you understand the, the kind of the the subtle drama that's unfolding in the course of a game where it may not appear that anything is going on to, to certain observers, you know, a person like a George will, you know, uh, will, will say there's a whole lot of stuff that's really worth your attention here, but you got to, you got to develop an ability to see it. Um, so maybe that kind of ties into to jazz as well. Well, baseball is my favorite team sport, although <laughs> there I don't you go. follow it as much as I used to. But <laughs> there are parallels because it's slow, it's deliberate, and you have to learn how the game works. Yeah. And even though a pitch isn't on the way, to the plate or a runner isn't running, there's still a lot going on with strategy and so on. Uh, so I think it's uh, like anything. For Let's take preaching. I, I will withhold names to be charitable, but I lived <laughs> in a city once where a man had a reputation for being a fantastic preacher. And my first wife, who's now with the Lord, Becky, uh, Glenn remembers <laughs> Becky, uh, yeah. We went to hear this preacher preach, and we came away and we said, he's a good speaker. He is not a good preacher. Hmm. We called them balloon sermons. 
It's like he would say something uh-huh. that would sound sweet and it would just fly away and you don't remember. <laughs> but if you don't know good preaching, good biblical, expository, exhortational, intelligent preaching, and you hear a good speaker talking somewhat about the Bible and drawing in your emotions and telling great stories, yeah, you'll say that's a great preacher and it's not a great preacher. Hmm. Right, right, yeah. He's, he's good at making TED Talks, uh, but not yeah. uh, <laughs> preaching. Yeah. Right. yeah. One of Maybe the things so. that I, I know I know from uh, I mean I taught guitar for eighteen years as kind of it was kind of my my job as I was working through through uh, grad school, and uh, and one of the things that I remember about that was kind of is fascinating from the guitar perspective of jazz, especially teaching improv to people who are just starting it is once they start to understand kind of the, the core chords and the scales that, that work with the, the chords, one of the hard things for people who don't have any background in jazz is to, to learn how to fit those together at the right time with the right sounds. I'm talking on the basic level, and it is not easy. I remember taking my first improv class in, in, in university, and uh, we would go around the room the first week, and basically they just start playing standards. And you're supposed when it gets to you, you're just supposed to improvise. On. I had no, I had no previous experience. So when they get to me, I just practice what Ellis Marsalis did. Uh, you know, in the sense that I didn't pray, I didn't play anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but but one of the things you you do, uh, you know, there are so many different ways into teaching it. That's the other fascinating thing is you can take. And I don't want to, you know, bore our audience with, you know, a bunch of theory. But you could take something like it's what we call the pentatonic scale in in music. It's a five five notes that you know it's it's really big in blues. Um, the pentatonic scale can work in jazz over all styles and combinations. And there are ways on the guitar of playing because the patterns are repetitious, where you actually can just move one one fret at a time and be able to play over almost all kinds of changes. So that's a real simple way in. And you can be very melodic without hitting too many bad notes because you're only dealing with five notes. But then you can use fuller modes. So there are so many different ways into the style as well. It, it, it's incredible. And just as a teacher, the the amount of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, I, you know, I think cre- I can only think of creation theologically in a sense of of how rich it is to allow just one style of music to be able to have that many possibilities with it, just to entering into it. Um, it, it is, it's incredible. I, I, you know, you, you wish you could allow your audience who has no background in it to peer in because it's, it's a phenomenally beautiful, beautiful uh, style of music, both to play and, and learn about. Yeah. There's really no bottom to it. Uh, recently I've discovered this uh, man on YouTube named Rick Beato or Beato. Mm. And he, I think he has a PhD in, in music theory. He's a guitar player and he interviews various musicians. And he did an interview with Pat Metheny that was an hour and 45 yeah. minutes long. And Pat Metheny <laughs> is so deep into the music, into the theory, uh, into yeah. the history of the music. It's just fascinating to hear them go into yeah. the, the depths. And one thing, you know, as a philosopher, as an apologist, Pat Metheny, who I think is an atheist, said hmm. we're always trying to reach this level above the ordinary, above the physical, above the mundane. And I've heard him say that before. I'm thinking, yes, it's the transcendent realm of the good. 
which is actually yeah. an yeah. element of God. Why, Pat, why yeah. can't you see this? When, when your <laughs> band is hitting all the notes perfectly and you're going beyond what you expected, you're, you're in the gift of God. You're touching transcendence. Yeah. yeah. And I've heard him say that several times. Wow. So music can be a medium yeah. for transcendent beauty at its best, jazz, other yeah. forms of music. Yeah. Yeah, this is a great this is a great note to end on. <laughs> we've, we've gotten to the, the end of uh, an hour already. And uh, I guess as we wrap up, is there anything that you wanted to say, Doug, or would like to say that maybe occurred to you as we were improvising <laughs> uh, that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, I did think of one situation with one of my students from many years ago. Uh, I brought in some jazz and I played it. And this uh, student had hardly ever heard jazz at all. And he didn't know what to make of it. And he said, gosh, when you're playing that music, it just made me feel strange and kind of jumpy. And I didn't know what was going on. I said, hey, you're a swinging man. You're learning how to swing. <laughs> Go with it. <laughs> so let's yeah. learn how to swing. It, you you know? ain't got a thing if you don't have that swing. Yeah, right. That's right. Let's, let's swing well, to the Lord and, and get in the groove of, of the good, the true, and the beautiful. That's great. That's great. Well, thanks a lot, Doug. We appreciate you joining us. And uh, is there is there anything you're working on, a, a recent book that you'd like to plug right now so people can maybe stay in touch with your thoughts? Uh, well, I think the best way to do that would be to go to my webpage, which has a very non-jazzy title called douglasgrotheist.com. And uh, <laughs> I, have a podcast, I have a podcast uh, called Truth Tribe. And my intro music is jazz, actually, for that. So I think I've done yeah. about nine or ten episodes of Truth Tribe. And one of them is about jazz, too. So, oh, nice. Yeah, great stuff. Well, anyway, uh, thanks again, Doug. It's been great to have you with us. And we're really glad that you could join us, folks out there in podcast land. And uh, you've reached the end of an episode. Um, if you like what you've heard and you'd like to support our work, uh, we don't take salaries or anything, but we do have some expenses that we incur uh, in producing the show. And when people uh, support the show through Patreon, that helps to offset those costs. So if you'd like to learn about that, uh, how you could support us, there's a link in the show notes. We'll have a link in the show notes to the to, to the things that, that Doug has mentioned, his podcast and, and of course, his, uh, his author's website. And uh, anyway, uh, with that said, uh, we'll just say goodbye for now. Bye-bye. Bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might also enjoy the new book by Jason Cherry, The Making of Evangelical Spirituality, now available on Amazon. Amazon.